0: Uh, and one of the most awful moments for me, really, Mum had gone upstairs to get changed and come back down, and she'd come back without pants on and different socks on and um and whatever, just not dressed appropriately appropriately i guess and um I just got a little bit frustrated and said, mommy, know where your pants are and whatever. And went upstairs and I showed her the drawer and said, look, you just got to put like one from here in a blah, 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 blah. You know, which was me not handling it too well coming out as well. And, and she sort of turned around and said, you know, you have no idea what I'm going through. And that just really crushed me because I, it was probably the first time I really contemplated what was going through her head. And she had told us, when Nan was going through it and was in the later stages that if this, if this ever happens to me, just shoot me in the head. Yeah, so right. I those thoughts were going through her head of, do I want to, to keep going? And if I keep going, I've, I'll, I feel like I'll become a burden and, and those sorts of questions. <laughs>
1: gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how They did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the nicello on the other side. Let's get juicing you probably know Takaya Honda from the TV show Neighbours, where his on-screen character David got hitched as part of the first same-sex wedding on Aussie TV, as well as his roles on Play School and The Family Law, to name a few. But you might not know behind closed doors, Takaya and his family are fighting a very real battle. For the last decade, he has watched his mum Rhonda slip away after she was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's at the age of just 52. In this very honest chat, Takaya discusses what it's like to grieve someone still alive, along with the unique position his public platform has given him to support the families of the almost half a million Australians living with dementia, 30,000 of those diagnosed with early onset. He also chats about what the experience has taught him and the way he'll always remember his beautiful mum. Takaya is a pillar of strength and resolve, and I've no doubt you'll be just as touched by the thoughtful and compassionate way he shares his story as I was. Here he is. Thank you so much for joining me, Takaya. It's a pleasure to have you on the Lemonade Podcast. How are you?
0: I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to chat.
1: Very, very excited. Now, how is isolation life treating you? How are you keeping busy?
0: Um, well, I started a, a YouTube live streaming I guess, talk show with uh, me interviewing uh, current cast of Neighbours and then I'm going to expand that into past cast as well as uh, other actors and people that I know are doing well overseas and that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm really trying to provide a platform where, uh, and I kind of discovered this doing an interview with Stefan Dennis last week who plays Paul Robinson on the show um, because he really didn't want to talk about Neighbours. Um, right. Because, he, well, he just didn't want to answer all the questions that he typically gets asked about, like, what was your favourite episode? What was mm-hmm. your favourite story? All that kind of thing. And so, and he was like, I really want to talk about, you know, me growing up and that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to do that. And uh, that chat really helped me to find where I want to go with it in terms of it. Uh, I want to do a bit of, of talking about, well, whatever show that people are on and that kind of thing and any behind the scenes stuff that we can kind of get to. But I also really want to talk about uh, life for the actor, um, yeah, growing up, how they, get to, how they get to being an actor. Um and what they want as well out of their careers and that kind of stuff and, it not, and let them talk about the things that they want to talk about that they never get asked in interviews either um, because I've, I've definitely, you know, you, you do those stream of interviews that uh, either, you know, 10 phone calls in a row or whatever um, and they're generally the same question. The exact and over again. same questions. Um, yeah,
1: and I love that it gives a bit of a glimpse and an insight into the actual person behind that character and who they are and what they like and what they did, grow, you know, before yeah. the show. I like that.
0: Yeah. That's, and people that's like such Stefan have amazing stories to tell as well. So um, you can just sit back and relax and listen, really.
1: Yeah, that is such a productive way to be spending your time in isolation. I assume <laughs> you're going to tell me you'd be like baking banana bread and, <laughs> and doing jigsaw puzzles. But no, that's much more impressive. <laughs> well done. Now well, go- yeah,
0: I, I'm not sure how successful I'm being at it yet, but <laughs> I'm getting there.
1: No, it's, I'm I'm very, very impressed with that. Now, Takai, with all my guests, I love to get a feel of what life was like for them growing up. Can you talk to me about your childhood? What was it like for you?
0: It's always funny because everyone thinks that they had a typical childhood, but no one, I think, did. <laughs> it was just yes. for them. Um, it was, it's kind of that question of like what it was like to have a father or mother who was this or is this. Because um, my parents uh, are both gymnastics coaches or were. Um, Dad was the... When I was very little, he, he Kind of stopped, I guess, when I was about one because we moved. But I was born in Canberra. Um, my dad was the head coach at the AIS, um, the Australian Institute of Sport for Women's Artistic Gymnastics. Mum was a high level judge and an elite coach as well. Wow. Um, my dad's story is actually super amazing, we don't have to get into that. But um... <laughs>
1: maybe, I'll, maybe I should get him on here and said that. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. Um, his short version is he, he moved here when he was 22. Um, And by the age of 26 was uh, head coach of the AIS. Wow. Yeah. That story is quite phenomenal and um, worthy of its own podcast, really. Um, But, yeah, so then growing up, we moved to Sydney when I was about one. I was really sick as a kid. uh, Had pneumonia four times, severe asthmatic. um, Couldn't play with other kids. So my parents got me uh, a little dog, a little poodle named Buttons, um, who was like my little friend. Um, I remember... Uh, running up and down the hospital corridors in those little red and yellow cars, and that was like my favorite thing ever. Um, and mom would be running behind me with the IV drip stand Aww. thingy. <laughs> <I> was like, <laughs> that was like my thing. Um, but then I was like incredibly sporty. Um, beyond that, uh, obviously having parents that are, are both uh, well, both PE teachers as well as being gymnastics coaches and um, fit people themselves. Uh, mostly played a lot of baseball. Uh, I played to a state level one. Was part of five teams that won state championships. I went to a school, Barker College, uh, and we had uh, a couple of teachers there who were phenomenal actors on their own. Um, one of which had been working with Bell Shakespeare for 10 to 15 years and only really started teaching um, because he had a couple of kids and you just need that regular paycheck. And a phenomenal, phenomenal director as well named Damien Ryan, uh, who was that teacher. And he, the, him and along with the, another all the teachers really there, I was really lucky to go to a school that had a really, really great drama program. Um, they, It wasn't really till I they started teaching me that I kind of understood that acting uh, was a career and what the path was. Yeah. I think up until that point, I think most people really when they're young in terms of acting, it, it seems like this... Uh, magical mystical yep. um like you how know, you do you actually
1: get there yeah
0: yeah you have to get spotted in a shopping center mm, or something mm-hmm. but they kind of defined what the hard work could be uh and what the the steps are that you can take to maybe achieve something and also the being the hollywood a-lister isn't the only version of an actor as well um there's plenty of jobbing actors or stage actors or um even just getting into tv and that kind of thing um they were all real possibilities and, uh, here's the work you can do to make yourself better and that kind of stuff. And then leaving school, I, um, I went, did a degree at UTS, uh, majoring in media arts and production, uh, as a bachelor of communications. Uh, and whilst there, I started acting with that, uh, Ryan and Terry started a, uh, theatre company called Sport for Jove Theatre Company, uh, which was with a bunch of uh, those Barker kids. And they, had their, what they had given us uh, is exemplified by the fact that 17 kids across, I think it was 17, across four years got into NIDA or Whopper. That is uh, incredible. And, which is insane. I mean, I don't yeah. think there's any school that's even had that across the history of those schools, let alone at the same time, um, which is just nuts and that's the kind of impression that they had you would turn up to any of those auditions and you say went to Barker and then there'd be a knowing nod amongst them wow and Barker
1: was just a normal high school is that right well
0: it was a a private school yeah Um, okay but it wasn't wasn't like like a school yeah it wasn't wasn't one of it wasn't um in any way selective for it that's
1: incredible there's so much rejection in acting yeah. and in the entertainments. Is it in the entertainment industry, did it ever get to the point where you're like, I can't deal with any more rejection or were you quite lucky? How did how did that go for you?
0: I think for me, and I think this is where this chat is is, is gonna go, is um, once mum got sick, uh, and then I was having to help take care of her, the acting really became the, the escape for me. So whenever I had an audition, which realistically at that time it was before the diversity. Well, I, I, I was on neighbors before the diversity thing really started to take off. So my auditions were few and far between no matter what. Wow. Um, I had an audition for tomorrow when the war began the film. Yeah. Um, and I got into the top three for that and was on hold for like three months. So I was doing uni and not knowing whether I was going to be able to finish the terminal and stuff and ended up missing out on that. And then, so I was like, Oh, this is amazing. Like I, my first TV audition I booked and the, my first film audition, I, uh, was in the top three, four nearly got. So I'm going to, I'm going to be set. This and is easy. It was, yeah. It's like, just get me an audition and I'm yeah. fine. And then, what do people
1: complain about?
0: I, I, I know. And then, and then like, I just hardly got any auditions for the next couple of years. Wow. Uh, and anything I would get that would be suitable for me. Cause that's the other thing too. You, could, you might get an audition, but it's just not never going to be you. I got an audition once for like a 50 year old. It was in uh, wild boys. It was like a 50 year old Asian man. And then, Two or three months later, I was auditioning for the boyfriend of that guy's daughter to that guy's daughter. And I was like,
1: wait, what's going what? on? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, How do you keep yeah, so- that passion alive? If you just said it can be years between getting a job, that much there must be times where are like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm done. <laughs>
0: well, I, well, I think a lot of people do, and that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. Um, so anyone out there, if you just wait long enough, eventually everyone else will disappear <laughs> you've got you know, to get a job.
1: I've heard that before. They say like the best is just to wait until like you're even you're an old you're elderly. Because there's not <laughs> Well, many.
0: yeah, but there's, there's not many elderly no. actors out there. So, um, you know Especially at, at at a level that is affordable for a lot of productions. Because yes. if you've if you've been doing well and that's why you've gotten to the age you are and still being an actor, then you're probably expensive. But if you haven't got any jobs, then you're not expensive, so then you'll be fine as an older actor, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, 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 there you go (laughs) for people listening who want to get into it, wait until you're about 70 or 80. Um, Yeah. Now, during this time that your career was skyrocketing, your mum, Rhonda, was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. Can you describe what it was like finding out she was unwell?
0: Well, uh, so her mum, my nan, uh, had passed away with Alzheimer's I think a year or two prior uh, to mum being diagnosed and she had, we had taken care of my nan, like she lived in our house for about a term of school when I was 12. Um, so I'm imagining that she had started getting symptoms from when she was about, even when I was about 10 maybe. Um, and then she was in full-time care after she left our place. Um, and that's for me, it's like the timelines get really blurry with, not so much with Nan as much as Mum, but definitely my like early twenties to mid twenties. That the, that space is is quite a strange blur of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, I I don't know why that is, whether I blocked things out or something, or whether um, because me taking care of Mum became relatively monotonous, but not necessarily in a in a in a bad way. It was just a lot of the same, you know. Of course, yeah. um, because Mum and Dad, my whole life worked seven days a week. Uh, they're coaching, uh, coaching kids because they coached kids to a high level. Um, you kind of can't take a day off. Uh, right. And that's even, you know, through Christmas period and stuff uh, that have days off around Christmas and stuff, but really they had to keep training. Cause the kids had to keep training because um, otherwise you, they get out of fitness and all that kind of stuff. So um, they had worked really, really hard. And with the dream of that, once they retire, they get to do all these things. Um, so we started seeing mum get symptoms and we were a bit more hyper aware to it because we'd seen Nan yeah. go through it uh, at around the age of 50. Um, and we were, you know, all of us were really hoping that it wasn't going to be Alzheimer's. Um, and there was a mum at my parents' gym that had uh, through menopause, I'm not sure. I don't even know. I was told a name for it, but during menopause, she was an accountant and then just something through the menopause experience or the, hormones and whatever was going on triggered something that basically numbers became like she became like numeral lexic or like right, numbers she okay. became really hard for her to do numbers and that's that had been her whole life for you know yeah. 30 or 40 years or whatever and and so we were hoping it was something like that that the things that mum was struggling with um it was just something to do with the menopause and then there might be a hormonal thing that they could balance out and it'll be fine um and mum had been an what was what's called an fig judge which is a so I think it's a French term, Federation Internationale of Gymnastics Judge, which means she could uh, judge in an international level for you know my whole life at least. Um, and she and so they do a test every I don't know if it's every year or every couple of years um, to recertify. And she had to recertify, and so she's you know she knew that things were were harder, so she was studying harder than she would have prior because she just knew everything before really. Um, and she ended up failing that, which was a real big. Shock to her Mm. um and for me it was like oh sort of weird that she would i mean um but hopefully and then she went for it again i think and then failed again um and so again the timeline sort of disappears on me but um eventually she went to get tested and um and that came back positive um for alzheimer's um which was a, uh, you know, dad's not the best at delivering information sometimes. And how I got told, um, <laughs> I came home, went upstairs and, and dad sort of poked his head out of the bedroom and just said, uh, oh, well, Mum uh, has Alzheimer's, so we just have to deal, deal with that. Okay. Yeah. And then just close the door. And oh, I was just like,
1: <laughs> "Right, wow, just dropped a bomb and then close the door. Yeah.
0: And then to double down on it, the girl I was seeing at the time texted me and said, Oh, I don't know if, um, I want this to be a serious thing or whatever and mm. kind of broke up with me and I was just like, oh, my God. What is going
1: what I doing on? doing all this at
0: the same time. Um, it was literally within an hour of each other.
1: Um, oh, that's cruel. Was like,
0: like, oh, uh, okay.
1: That day would have just started like an ordinary normal day as well. That's always the, the eerie yeah. kind of thing with things that completely transform the shape of your life is that they just start as these normal days.
0: Yeah, and I, I have no idea what I was coming home from. Maybe I went to the gym or something and um, – but I really specifically can picture um, walking up the stairs and then dad say, and then just walking into my bedroom and just sort of sitting there and going, Oh, uh, okay. Uh, how do I, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. Um,
1: because that's the thing is you said your nan had had it. So you had experience with it. You knew what it meant. You knew what it entailed and, your mum knew as well what was coming, how torturous did that make it for all of you, in particular your mum, knowing what was coming
0: I think that's the one of one of the hardest things for the person. Uh, I do somewhat believe it's, it's even harder for those around them, especially their partner. Um, in in like my dad's case, they had all these plans once they retire and stuff and mm. um, all of those things disappear and you, you the role becomes, all, okay, now I'm taking care of you. Um, and even to the point of, of what when does becoming intimate become inappropriate um, and then do I now have to give up on any intimacy mm. because of your condition, um, which of course at some point you do, um, and then what does that mean for the rest of my life? Um, because it doesn't, it's, it's a slow thing. Um, early onset's generally more aggressive. The younger you are, the, usually the faster it'll uh, attack uh-huh. you. Um, but, but even so, it's still like, you know, and dad's dad, dad's probably took care of mom for longer than he should have. Um, but coming back to what you're asking about, um, there's obviously a lot of denial and there's one of those things that like the notebook, annoys me as a film in a way. I mean, I, I like it as a, a love story, but in terms of its dementia story, it's this idea that um, you can have these moments of lucidity and they are good things because as the person progresses, any moment where they become lucid about their own mm. position, what's happening to them is an awful thing yeah. to suddenly realize, because when, when they, when they, when they're at a certain point where they, they're not remembering that they are uh, sick, then, then they're fine. They, they kind of you're sort of plodding along, they get frustrated with things or whatever, but when they remember that they uh, they've been diagnosed or whatever, that becomes a real painful moment for them. And there's not much happiness that comes from, from those moments. And those films are kind of that, like the notebooks kind of annoying in that way because it makes it seem like, okay, now I can jump back into just being happy and all that. But you're trying to deal with actually the position I'm in, Uh, and one of the most awful moments for me really mum had gone upstairs to get changed and come back down and she'd come back with our pants on and different socks on and um and whatever just not dressed appropriately appropriately i guess and um i just got a little bit frustrated and said "Mum, you know where your pants are and whatever and went upstairs and i showed her the drawer and said look you just got to put like one from here in and blah, blah 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 and um and you know, which was me not handling it too well, coming out yep. as well, and and she sort of turned around and said, "You know, you have no idea what I'm going through," and 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 that just really crushed me because I it was probably the first time I really contemplated what was going through her head. And she had told us when Nan was going through it and was in the later stages um, that if this if this ever happens to me, just shoot me in the head. Yeah. So I know yeah. those thoughts were going through her head of. Um, do I want to to keep going? And if I keep going, I've, I'll I feel like I'll become a burden, and and those sorts of questions. Um, if you've seen Steel Alice, that's probably the best yep. example of it, and that's been the closest representation I've seen to to what is the reality. Um, and I think it I think that film does particularly well at explaining different different people's point of view. Um, I think it's Alec Baldwin's character who the the husband who kind of just can't deal with it and I think leaves or whatever. And I I imagine there'd be a lot of people who've watched that film who see that who maybe don't agree with him or whatever or think or that, could judge
1: know, him has, really has, easily. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I sit here going, I don't judge him at all for that. I think that it sometimes there's certain things that you just can't deal with. And it's actually to the benefit of others that you step away from that. Um because realistically what will happen is that that person will then just bring negativity and create mm. a worse mm. situation because they can't deal with it. Um, so sometimes I think it is better to, to step away and, like, like he does. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've seen, I've seen mm. the film. Oh, it's heartbreaking,
1: um, that film. I, I watched it once and I don't think I could do it again. It's just really difficult to get through.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, that time was difficult, Yeah
1: when my my nana had dementia and it was interesting what you said then that you you felt snappy at your mum, and it was you know it was frustrating that she couldn't just do it and I remember my mom and I was a bit younger but how frustrating it was for my mum as well and you feel this incredible level of empathy but also in the day-to-day things it is really really quite frustrating and mm. it's not been and since and still, my mum—I think she passed away twenty years ago—still carries so much guilt for handling it in that way. But as you said, it's just such a natural response to a situation that everyone is being so impacted by in such different ways. How do you nav? How did you navigate that, and how did you navigate caring for her as well?
0: I don't know. Like <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the, the the honest question in a way because I was just thinking then while you you were asking the question about how the moments where I kind of realized more things and because initially like there is a big denial thing or there was a big denial thing I think for me which I didn't know I was in I guess maybe um and it really came through or my realizations came through in real practical ways so there was a point where mom had to stop driving or and then before that point there was a period of her unsure whether she should be driving so I would ask her you know, can you just drive me to the station? And then she would say, no, I kind of can't. And in my brain, I was like, oh, that's, you know, it was inconvenient for me, yeah. but it was, it was also just a lack of recognition on my part that, you know, she actually shouldn't be driving. And you probably don't and want to acknowledge,
1: want, yeah, you no, don't want to acknowledge it's that bad, yeah.
0: Um, and so there's like a series of, of things that happened that I think, well, for me at least, were were, were moments where I started to realise and on. The hard thing with it is it's a disease that is constantly changing and it's not one diagnosis uh, in the sense that where a cancer patient will get, if it's a terminal case and a stage four, you know, you've got X amount of months uh, is typical your length of the rest of your life. And um, then you've got that time to try to utilize it to, to get the most out of it and, uh, and do what you can to fight it. But the person stays there and whilst, you know, their body might, degrade over that time their brain doesn't and when someone's brain's degrading or it might depending on the cancer of course but the um but in this case the you it's the person is i don't want to say disappearing but really that's what it is and it's because they they become something else um it's hard to even say that even that they do become someone else because it's not as though a different personality arrives. It's not like one person gets replaced with another. It's just one sort of disappears and there's a few remnants and you cling to that and you still love that person. Um, But really it's part of the issue with modern science can be is sometimes are we prolonging life that may be not to the benefit of that person? Um, Because you a hundred years ago, there wouldn't have been any, any, Help or any drugs to try and you know, keep them alive, really, and and you know sometimes sometimes you think, are we making are we torturing her mm-hmm. by helping her stay alive? You know, um, which sounds like a really awful thing to say, but because you know it's been over a decade, you can't help but con- uh, contemplate these things, because like she had said, if this ever happens to me, shoot me in the head, and you then wonder. Maybe, like, because obviously she could, she wasn't able to take that step herself, and maybe she knew that way back beforehand, and maybe she really did want us to take that step for a kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that I ever could, but the, but then you, you, I can sit here and think that, well, are we doing everything to to help her? Is actually doing what ultimately she never wanted to begin with? Um, And while she's, none of us ever feel like she's a burden or, or that kind of thing. You just don't know what's going on inside her head too, that maybe she's sitting in, in her head and thinking those things. Um, and there's other conditions as well that, you know, obviously that um, you specifically are the person still stuck inside their head, but they, their body just doesn't do what they want. Um, but here is one of those things you just don't know really what thoughts are in their heads. Can
1: you talk to me about when that that diagnosis? And then you said, you know, she'd come in with you know forgetting pants and different socks on. And then to now, what's that trajectory trajectory been like?
0: So now she's um, it's kind of like a Benjamin Button thing, um, as silly as that sounds. Uh, now she's in full time care, and uh, you'll get an odd word. Uh, you won't get a sentence. You won't be able to have a conversation. Um physically, she still walks and and that kind of thing. um it's a bit aimless, but she can still move around um if they have like a musician or or someone come in then apparently the um the nurses and stuff say she gets some has a dance and that kind of thing mm. um and but in between then and now it it, it is really that thing of uh, they become younger and younger in their capabilities. Um, so there's a point where I would just sort of describe, she's sort of at a toddler level. Um, and then it becomes less when the verbal starts to go more so that, um, like it'd be simple things like you'd be able to, uh, uh, I'm trying not to do this now physically. So because <laughs> people won't be able to hear me doing it, but, uh, she would be like, would be at the dinner table and she, you'd go, "Oh, can you pass me the salt? And there would be a real, she, like you could see the message go in, but then a real confused state come out of, of unsureness as to what to do, and be looking at that, and looking at you, and then looking at it, and then and then you'd have to kind of try to confirm for her that no, 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 yeah, that that, that that's one, and then um, where where you could see the confusion and how difficult the simplest of tasks can become mm. um, because of that uncertainty for themselves, and uh, Mum fought it. Like I think that's where people talk about a moment where. It, people can become relatively aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that denial thing for themselves. And then uh, it becomes an a, aggressive way of not having to do anything that might expose them as well um, because they don't want people to think that they have Alzheimer's or mum didn't at least. And so then that comes out in a, will be, how do I not have to do it? Oh, I'll, I'll just not do it. Oh, wait, I'm just going to, get angry so that they don't ask me to do that thing. And then they won't see that I'm not, I just don't know how to do that anymore. Um, so there's a lot of hiding, um, which I'm not sure if, whether it's a conscious thing or whether it's just something that happens because you're the body is trying to defend itself really. And so that's sort of, I guess, one of the stages. And then it it just, it just keeps, it's so slow that it's really hard to um, you don't remember to remember a moment, you know, like that, this is this stage. There's no, no one sat sat you down and go, here's the hundred steps. Yeah. And you'll have a moment where this happens. You have a moment where this happens. It's just so, suddenly one day, some one other thing is harder to do. And you may not have known that it was actually months before that. That was hard to do because they just wouldn't do it a month.
1: Or two yeah. Before right. That. Okay. Is that was is that, has it been 10 years since she was diagnosed?
0: Yeah. Cause yeah, it has. Uh, but, but again, like the, the rate of change is different from person to person. Um, which is one of the hard things with the brain. I just don't know how, or why things happen.
1: That's an incredible amount. I know you've said it is very, very slow, but still to change in that amount of time. Have you been, what have you been doing to support yourself? And has your dad been supporting himself in terms of caring for your mental health during something like this?
0: I'm not sure if there was a whole lot of conscious <laughs> um, <laughs> work done to, to, on my part at least, to deal with it. Um, it's only now really where I feel like I've I've taken or done more things that have meant that I've been able to work through things a little bit more. The work I do with Dementia Australia as an ambassador for them, emceeing their memory walk and jog events. The first one I attended was as an ambassador. I hadn't been to one before. Uh, and it was amazing what being around a community of people who have a shared experience, what that can do, uh, it's not necessarily even going up and talking to anyone. It's just knowing that other people are going through the same thing, that they understand that um, you can share a look and you just know um, that is, and I, I, that's why I encourage as, as best I can, anyone who's in a similar position to go to those events. Uh, not that we can do that right now. And, you know, they're, they're doing all these virtual things at the moment um, because there's, there's something kind of magic to that. and, something that's just reinforcing or just allows weirdly to, to reset in a way or something that. And
1: to know um, you're not alone, I guess as well. Yeah. Yeah. would yeah. be a massive part of those events, I would assume.
0: Yeah. And for dad, I mean, he, he probably had the hardest time. Well, he definitely would have had the hardest time um, of me, my brother and him um, and trying to figure out, cause at the, when she was diagnosed we still they still had their gym and dad was then having to figure out how to try to keep that alive and run on its own and financially how are we going to um keep going and not only you know keep the gym going but then keep the the household going uh with mum's decline and not being able to, to work and then fortunately for him he lent on the parents at the gym and they stepped up in a big way and uh, took over a certain aspects or whatever and, and really started to help. And they did a whole bunch of fundraising and that kind of stuff um, for the gym more so than for, for mum, just so that they could um, do certain things to get to the gym to a certain place um, where, dad, where dad was able to sell it, um, the business so that he could take care of mum full time. Cause prior to that I was, um, which was really just staying home and, and cooking meals and stuff with her. and um, making Juggling sure your career happy.
1: at the same time, weren't you when you were doing that? Yeah.
0: So and the fortunate thing with acting is, you know, an audition can only take maybe an hour or whatever. And depending on how long it takes to get there and back and the waiting room. And um, so it meant that I could, I could, I could just leave her there for an hour and she'd be fine. Um, Mm -hmm. But as, as as the further along it went, um, I had to battle my own guilt about leaving her. Um, And the only thing that I could cling on to was the knowledge that, she didn't want to become a burden and she wanted, she didn't want her to be the reason that uh, our lives stopped or that I missed out on an opportunity because I know that she spent us after we were born her whole life uh, trying to help me and my brother achieve whatever we wanted to achieve. Um, so I had to go to those auditions, uh, holding on to the belief that, that this is what she wants. Um, it's what I want as well. But I, I, I had to know that she, was wanting me to do that. Um, I don't think it all it helped all that much because uh, whilst I was taking care of her, I I didn't get many roles really, um, not, not new ones at least. I was doing theatre and stuff with uh, Sport for Jove, and that was things that I'd already been a part of. And I was being cast more because they knew what I could do rather than needing to audition for anything specifically. And um, it was probably within that last year of taking care of mum where I knew that. I, I, a better way to describe it is that once I knew that mom and dad were going to be moving up to Queensland and we were in the process of selling the house and selling the business and stuff. Uh, I guess for me, I saw that there was not an end in sight, but I knew that, um, the pressure was being taken off me a bit. Yep. Um,
1: I'd love to hear how you choose to remember her.
0: That's a, I've never been asked that. Um, I don't know is probably the, the best answer. And I don't know whether I can answer that until um, it's over in a way. I mean, I, like I, I, I was kind of thinking about this the other day with thinking about how she is now, because I feel like you can't you get to a place of acceptance, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then once you kind of get to that place of acceptance, you're accepting how she is now. And so you kind of forget to to remember who she was. I think, in part, for myself, it's, it's this weird guilt thing of that. If I remember too much of what she was, then I miss that, and then I feel guilty about feeling that way, even though that's the reality. And how would I remember, Mum? It's we're getting. So I'm I'm engaged at the moment. We're getting married, and maybe that's happening in September. We just don't know yet. Mm. But Mum's not going to be able to be there. Um, for a couple of reasons, um, namely it's logistically quite difficult. Um, we're doing it in Byron Bay and she's in Brisbane. And so getting her there and back is, is harder than you think. And then on the day itself um, we have to have a carer or something for her to relieve dad, but then dad's still going to be worried about it. And yeah. any, like if she makes some noises at the wrong time, whatever dad's going to feel like, so to, to make it easier for dad as well, um, then it, it, it becomes a better thing in a way for everyone because uh, mom's not really going to know what's going on we're going to we want to do like a separate little wedding for her in her care facility um because they have a room kind of that you can use and we'll just do like a, we'll dress up or whatever and 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 kind of do it in front of her for her we have been trying to think of ways to incorporate Mum as, as best we can like trying to figure out what her favorite flower is or which dad doesn't know because dad had really bad hay fever so he never bought her flowers really outside like roses or whatever that that didn't trigger that too badly or but her favorite color is purple so trying to put little bits of purple in and so that got me thinking about or actually amy my my fiancee would ask me um you know what was your mum like in it because she never met her prior to um, her diagnosis and um you know tell me some stories and (laughs) Uh, most of the stories are kind of embarrassing for mum, really, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it was an interesting exercise for me to try and go, well, what do I remember? And she was a very, and this is probably one of the more heartbreaking things, she was very strong person, very headstrong person. She knew what she believed in or what she thought. Uh, and she would argue that point to, to the nth degree. She, I'm not sure if dad will appreciate this, but she, for us kids, at least she was very much the. Uh, one wearing the pants, <laughs> uh, but she wanted kind of went a lot of the time, um, and she was funny. She had a big laugh. Um, I think that's one of the things that I've gotten from her. Um, any actor who's been on stage in front of me knows that, and and knows my laugh knows when I'm in the audience because they can hear me, <laughs> um, and I think that I've got that from her. As probably as well as probably the headstrongness. Um, head strength i don't know how to say that.
1: Uh, <laughs> strong will yeah. maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah
0: and and fist determination i guess as well um i would have got that from both of my parents really um you kind of can't be an elite gymnast and not have that but yeah definitely her big laugh uh definitely she would be the one that yelled when you were in trouble um Dad maybe would be a bit more of the enforcer, but but mum was definitely the one that would determine the sentence. Um, she was a bit of the judge, most likely the jury too. Um, <laughs> but she she was ne- she was never afraid to to put her mind or her um, her thoughts out there, um, and that's probably one of the the strongest things I have about her.
1: I've seen a lot of people who are in similar situations as you describe it as. The process of grieving somebody that's still alive. Can you talk to me how that feels for you? Well,
0: uh, that's I've said that before as well. Um, I think it's a common thought for people in this position because you are it, it's it's a living grief. Because if you don't grieve, then you're not dealing with it. Because it is a loss of a person, even though it's slow and they're still alive. There is such a big change in who they are and your relationship to them too. So there's a lot of things that you've, you've got to grieve. There's a way that I describe relationships in general, um, whether that be a love relationship or not. Uh, if you have two people uh, and a relationship occurs between them, no matter what that is, I feel like it's kind of like a, a third person is created in the middle and how you foster that relationship is what that third person in the middle becomes, and how they look or what they're like. And you kind of, in a love relationship, you want to foster that relationship with some, with as much love and care, and kindness and happiness and joy and all of those positive things as you can, so that you make that third person as beautiful as uh, kind and as loving and, and as happy as possible. So, whenever you know an argument might happen, I, I try to think about how am I making. What what is that third person looking like right now? Um, and by doing that, then I'm removing necessarily the conflict or whatever, yeah. and just going. And then you focus on the actual relationship and what that means. Um, so with a relationship with mum, it, it because that relationship is being completely flipped on its head. That relationship, that third person in the middle, is essentially dying. So that's the thing you're grieving, and something else is being born, which is much lesser, really. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be fully formed because the other side of the relationship isn't feeding it, really. It can't um, from mum's perspective. So it's only what I can give. So I try to give as, as much as I can to that, which is which is difficult, uh, especially being in different states. And But, again, it, I fall back on that thing of just knowing what she wanted for me. Um And knowing that the practicality of not being able to see her super frequently, but dealing with that grief, there's definitely been times where I didn't deal with it very well um, and it's only in hindsight that I can really recognize that that's the situation still may have occurred, like with a girl breaking up with me or um, something not going my way on on and how I reacted to that situation at the time i felt like I was reacting in, in the way that I just would have reacted. But now looking back, I go, if that happened right now, I don't think I would react that way because I was in a place where I was dealing with so many things. I didn't have the extra room to deal with anything more. So if something else, and if something positive came along, like I'd gotten a girlfriend or whatever, and that fell apart, there was no room left in my, brain to deal with one more thing
1: so it would feel 10 times worse probably than what it really was
0: I think so yeah yeah Uh, because especially in those sorts of cases that was something that I had gotten something something good was happening Mm -hmm. it was pure Mm -hmm. and it was good it was there was no like I it wasn't infected in any way by everything that was going on and so there was definitely parts of me that were clinging to that that were wanting uh, that to just be successful and to be easy because everything felt so hard, um, taking care of mom and then auditioning and getting rejected. Those things do take a toll, having to keep going to the gym and try to stay in shape. And, um, because our job requires us to be perfect at whatever we're supposed to be. Um, and so there's so many pressures there that when uh, something else came along and it just felt easy and nice and good and was, was uh, made me happy. And I didn't feel like i was it was another thing that I was having to work really hard at when those things when that fell apart. it was really difficult, I think, for me to to react in in what would be how I would react now. Yeah. Um,
1: that makes per- no, that makes perfect sense yeah absolutely you ha- you mentioned before you have volunteered tirelessly to dementia Australia. Why is it important for you to be using your platform to turn something that has been so difficult for you and your family? Into an opportunity to help other people?
0: I'm a problem solver. And one of the things that's really difficult about Alzheimer's is there's no solution. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that tortured me was not being able to solve that. So that moment where I got frustrated with Mom over the pants was me trying to pro- solve the problems like, Mom, this is an easy solution. You know, this It's just in this drawer kind of thing. And that moment was me realizing that there is no solution and I can't help in a like a practical way or something. It, it's literally on the emotional side of trying to be supportive that I can really do that. Uh, so for me, becoming involved with Dementia Australia was totally about trying to create something positive out of such an awful situation, to give myself a solution, um, to turn my experience and and this the, this awful, awful, awful thing into something where I can at least try to help others with it um, and I didn't know what that was going to look like when I became an ambassador, when I started talking to Dementia Australia, um, and now it's, it's in a position where I'm doing a lot of the MCing for them.
1: What are, you know, you've said that you speak to so many people who have been impacted just as you have. Is there anything that people say that they wish they had more access to to help them feel supported, or is there any way you think that families of loved ones who have been impacted can be supported more?
0: I think everyone should contact Dementia Australia. Um, it's a hard thing to do because there's because there's so much denial. At least there was for me at the start. Um, it is a really hard thing to to pick up the phone because they've got a free counselling service. Um, I think I think it's twenty four seven. I can't remember off the top of my head um, that you can pick up and call and talk to someone there who who just knows the situation, understands it. Uh, but they've also got a lot of um, ways that they can help uh, figure out the finances of it, figuring out the care of it, all that kind of thing. Um, So that's the first step, I think, for people. Um, And the earlier that I can try to encourage people to do that, the better. Uh, Because there's other things, simple things that you wouldn't think about that they've already figured out research-wise to help, not in terms of necessarily a medical solution, but, but the practical solutions of, Uh, people with Alzheimer's struggle with things that are low contrast. So walking into a a bathroom becomes very confusing because everything's white.
1: Oh, okay. Yep.
0: If you put a, um, like a black seat on the toilet, then it, it, then they can see the toilet. They know where the seat is, but if everything's white, then they, that's where, you know, I definitely had to help Mum at times go to the bathroom, help a shower and that kind of stuff. And that, the reason why that was so hard is because everything's the same color. Yeah. So if we had known that, then maybe we could have tried putting the toilet seat on that was a really contrasting color and that could have made all the difference. Um, yeah,
1: wow. So that support that they can provide is pretty invaluable in those early seats. So is there's anyone that's where you were 10 years ago, that would be your first, that would be your advice. Call them.
0: Get yes, because there are way. these simple things that you can get a lot of help. Um, that could be simple things that you can implement um, that you didn't realize you could, uh, or that would make a difference. Um, And they're doing a lot with technology to, to give people an idea of what it's like. They've got a whole VR uh, virtual reality. And I think they're doing some augmented reality stuff now to, to give you an impression of what it's like for someone who has uh, Alzheimer's um, which is quite helpful just to at least get your head around. Okay. If, if, if something occurs, why, or what's going on in that person's head um it just gives you a little bit of understanding so they're definitely the first call that i would say um to give them a call yeah
1: absolutely now it is um in the next few weeks mother's day is coming up is it the milestones that are harder like that or is it just it can just creep up on you on a random day that doesn't really make much sense
0: uh i would say it's more random day um from an actor actor's perspective where like we study human behavior really uh, ultimately what it boils down to and there was a moment when I was in New York um, just as a tourist really and um, I was in a store and I was buying underwear because I'd heard this store had cheap underwear so I was buying (laughs) underwear and I, was, I, I don't cry much. It is actually one of the hardest things for, for me as an actor um, because I just don't have access to that skill very easily because I just don't cry often. I can't remember the last time I really cried uh, specifically. And I was in a store and it just hit me the thought of what's going through her head uh, and what that existence might feel or look like uh, I didn't start bawling or anything, but I definitely started tearing up and like tears were coming down my face in the middle of this and I was by myself and, uh, and it was maybe only a minute or two and then I was sort of okay again. But it, it can be just these random moments. For me, it's definitely when I contemplate her reality. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm never going to be upset for the wrong word about my own position um because i guess I'm, I'm a person who you know you can't change those things so then you've got to accept them and just push on or whatever um make the best of it but feel like that when i when i try to when i go to a place of of, of adopting where she's at and what she's potentially dealing with or thinking or feeling then that's that's what gets me on moment, on days like Mother's Day or her birthday, they may be one of those times where I haven't actually figured out a way to deal with it. So mostly I don't let them feel like a different kind of day. Mm. Um, they, In my mind, they're sort of just another day. Because it's a weird thing as well that at least for me, I when I'm with her, I'm never getting upset or that kind of stuff because I don't want to give her that experience because she wouldn't Mm. understand it.
1: So you feel Um, like you're almost holding it all together. You're being this like pillar of strength because that's what you know how to, that's what you know how to do. That's what you feel like you'll be the most used to being, I guess, as well.
0: One of the saddest things is um, we were at, my brother's had two kids now um, and we were at Christmas, I think it was the year before last, must have been, and dad was sitting there and he, he went sort of quiet. He's sort of quiet anyway, to be honest, but um, he, he just sort of said that mum would have loved this because she always when growing up talking about, you know, having grandkids and being able to teach them gym and the kids were playing and me, I think me and Koji, were, Koji's my brother, uh, were playing with the kids on the little rug thing and um, and dad was just watching and he just, he had a real hard moment of going, these moments are particularly hard because I know how much mum, your mum, would have loved this moment and this is all she ever wanted. All the work that she'd done was really just to have her kids being happy with grandkids and just playing and uh, having a real, just that classic family moment. Yeah. Uh, and she, she just won't ever really know what that is um, or at least will never hear her say anything about it or acknowledge it even if we go there and have that exact same moment in time in front of her. We won't, cause she, she cried easily. So she, would she, you know, those sorts of moments she would have, you know, cry with happiness or whatever. And so that's a hard moment, especially for dad. Uh, but for us too. And there, I think those specific moments as, as opposed to the days are the things that um, like even when I, I had done that, um, my great big adventure. So I booked that whilst I was still taking care of mum, and that was a sort of a, a pretty, quiet achievement for me. It was my first presenting audition that I'd done, and I'd gotten it, and we'd filmed it over several months, and then it'd been on, it would come on TV, and then it was on air and it was on being broadcast. And I went, "Oh, mum, come and have a look and and watch and stuff." And she just sat there for for a couple of minutes, and then just sort of wandered off. And there's not because she wasn't she wouldn't have been interested or whatever, but just because she wouldn't have been taking in what was going on yeah. or the fact that I was on TV and this was an accomplishment. And that was a moment where I, I guess was another sort of moment of acceptance of going, well, there's nothing I can, I can't say, Hey mom, come back or whatever. or I can't get angry at her for that. I can't get frustrated. It's just, that's just what it is now. Um, and that's the same with, you know, play school or family law or neighbors being able to have, you know, the first same sex marriage on Australian yeah, TV from when it was legalized and not And just have to try to know that she's proud of that. Um,
1: And know her well enough to know that she definitely would be. So I think that's something that must be really important.
0: But but being robbed of hearing her say the words though, Mm -hmm. um, or even just have the look, um, which sucks a little bit.
1: Right. Um, it's unimaginable. You're so strong. Like I've, I've had tears that many times throughout this chat, listening to you speak and you're just, you're such a pillar of strength in front of me. So, you know, it's, um, it's very,
0: probably myself,
1: <laughs> 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 I'm sure, but it's, as you said, you know, you talking to me now probably feels like stuff that you've spoken about. It's those moments that you have to yourself, that it comes back in ways that you probably didn't think it would, or that it would feel.
0: I'm quite a deep thinker in a way. So, most of the things I've said, I've thought about prior. Yes.
1: Yeah. Now, what what has this experience and everything you've gone through in the last 10 or so years taught you about yourself?
0: I wouldn't say that it's taught me resilience and that kind of thing because I think mum taught me that before. Maybe that I'm not as good at dealing with things as I may think. uh, And that there's certainly things that when I'm going through something that's tough that I, can't control because there's a certain element of me that is a bit of a control freak with things. And to try to be aware of that, I guess, as as hard as that is, I'm not sure what else I, I've learned that's specific from this um, outside of just that life can be shit sometimes and it doesn't matter how nice or good a person or how hard you work. Sometimes things just don't go your way to, um, but I guess in, in, from a positive vein, um, that's not a reason to stop uh, or give up. Even if you deserve something or you want something uh, or you feel like you, you deserve something and you miss out on it or you, or you can't achieve it or whatever um, that in itself, isn't a good enough reason to give up. And it always comes down to, to thinking that do you really want it? And if you really want it, it doesn't matter about whether something didn't go your way and I think that's come from just having a whole lot of stuff that hasn't gone, I'm not in my way, but it just hasn't been positive. There's no way I'd be who I am right now if it wasn't for what's happened with mum. I'd probably be a little bit more selfish maybe or I would maybe not have as clear a grasp on the finality of life or something um, because you can get um, early onset Alzheimer's is in your 30s. So who knows what next year holds for me um and there is something that's terrifying about that um or it is just terrifying and i haven't had the genetic test to see whether uh, i have the gene um because at this point it's helpful for the research side because then they, if i did have it they can scan my brain uh, because I've, i get to go to these panels and stuff because of dementia australia and hearing that the they've got heaps and heaps and heaps of data on on people who have been diagnosed, but they don't have much from that person when it, they were ten years old or something, and, and yeah. as how their brains changed, and trying to figure out what actually is the moment where something changes. Maybe it's ten years before any symptoms show. Um, but for me, it's a, that's. I guess that's a selfish choice. In in that, I can't. I, I struggle with outside of that bit of research, seeing a positive thing in knowing. Um, I, it may come back that I don't have it, but that doesn't mean I won't develop it anyway, not the gene, but the disease. And uh, if I do have it, then that's psychologically a very difficult thing to, to confront. Um, especially because you have no way of knowing when that gene might create the situation for you. So you can hope that a a cure or something comes, but from the researchers that I've listened to, there's, there's nothing on the planet planet currently that that is giving an indication to a cure or something. They've got a couple of things that they've tested that are are slowing down the progress, giving an extra two to five years. But outside of that, I mean, my hope and my belief is because it's now the biggest killer of women and second biggest killer of anyone um, that because of that and the amount of people that are, uh, have been diagnosed or will be diagnosed um, at the moment, every one in three people have someone closely connected, and by 2050 everyone will, um, that there's too much money there. Because of that, there's so much money for drug companies to make that the amount of R&D, hopefully then they're pouring money into because of that, uh, hopefully that accelerates the progress being made by the researchers to find some sort of cure or at least something that can pause it or or whatever it is. Um, And that's kind of what you hope for.
1: What do you hope, and you probably touched on it there, but what do you hope you get out of being so candid and vulnerable with your story?
0: It's the thing of the memory walk and jog of, of trying to give people that shared community and understanding. I'm privileged to have a public profile uh, and people follow me because of that because uh, I have a lot of people who message me or, or whatever through social media and stuff uh, and share that story uh, for them um, because that idea, they, I am hopefully offering someone who makes them feel like they're not alone, and someone who they can tell their story to, who has an understanding. It doesn't. I don't even need to respond in any special way beyond just saying I'm sorry that that's happening, and um, I hope that you know everything will uh, be okay for you, and um, that you're dealing with it okay. And I, I really hope that people get some. Uh, understanding and, and, and know that it can affect anyone. And I, I, beyond that, give awareness to everyone else out there um, and give them an understanding of what their friend who has a mum or, or a dad or, or a partner or whatever, uh, them an understanding of what that person might be going through and why they may react in a way that doesn't seem normal to them because it's, 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 it's something that has a a weird taboo around it. Mm. Uh, People don't talk about it. People who are going through it don't talk about it with their friends and stuff much. They brush it off. I mean, it's a very Australian thing too. Mm. Um, But we should, um, people should be aware. Um, and if anything making them aware so that they don't waste their time, uh, on stuff that doesn't matter too. Um,
1: now, Takaya, I love to finish all of my interviews in the same way with the same question, and that's what would what would the Takaya now in front of me on virtual reality <laughs> tell the Takaya in his darkest moments?
0: It's hard, but that's okay. Keep going because you can't move forward without moving forward. Yeah, maybe something like that. I love um, that. I try to keep the message simple as possible because otherwise, I I, I would. You'd be like, "What is his voice?"
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much. What a beautiful way to finish. What's been a really epic chat. Thank you. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing all of that with me. And you, you know, you would be making your mum so proud. So I'm very, very thankful that you were so open and candid with me thank you so much again <laughs> no well, thank you and thank emotional you for, it's beautiful
0: well thank you for inviting me on and helping yeah. to raise more awareness and spread that message i mean you, you've been touched by it with your nan as well yeah so,
1: um,
0: yeah i yep. I'm have to go through it too so um yeah i, I appreciate being on here and being able to oh. say everything i've said and hopefully some people out there can get some comfort from it
1: Absolutely. And even people who are going through different experiences, I'm sure will get so much out of, you know, just your, the way that you keep going and keep moving forward. So thank you once again. Thank you. If you have any questions about dementia, a free and confidential service is available office hours, Monday to Friday on 1800 100 Thank you so much, Takaya, for being so candid and brave and sharing your story with me and the listeners. You can connect with him at Takaya H on Instagram. As always, you can find me at Elizabeth O'Neill. Your support of Lemonade helps it grow and allows me to spend time finding awesome guests just like Takaya to share with you. Clicking subscribe, hitting five stars, leaving a review, sharing it with your friends via social media. It all really helps. I so appreciate anything you have time for. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back on Thursday. Bye.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.